0: to Enduring Interest. I'm your host, Flag Taylor. I teach in the Political Science Department at Skidmore College, and my writings have appeared in venues like the American Interest, Modern Age, National Review, and Law & Liberty. From the unjustly neglected to the often cited but seldom read, and from the underappreciated to the just plain obscure, the Enduring Interest podcast aims to give important books and essays a wider audience. Some works will allow us to revisit permanent questions while others might provide a unique or forgotten perspective on a very contemporary problem. We hope to educate and entertain and take listeners away from the pressure of the latest news cycle. Here at Enduring Interest, we are in the midst of exploring books and essays that address the great challenge of the 20th century, totalitarianism and ideology. And we're discovering that certain aspects of that challenge are very much with us in this century Next up in the podcast, we'll be releasing an episode with Jim Pontuso on Václav Havel's trilogy of plays, Audience, The Unveiling, and Protest. And then look for my conversation with Claire Cavanaugh on two poems by Czesław Miłosz, You Who Wronged and Child of Europe. Please remember to suggest books or essays and guests. You can message us on Twitter and our handle is at the EIPod. My guest today is Daniel J. Mahoney, and we'll be discussing Raymond Aron's classic work, The Opium of the Intellectuals, first published in France in 1955. Dan holds the Augustine Chair in Distinguished Scholarship at Assumption University. His latest books include The Other Solzhenitsyn, Telling the Truth About a Misunderstood Writer and Thinker, and more recently, The Idol of Our Age, How the Religion of Humanity Subverts Christianity. He's the co-editor of the indispensable volume, The Solzhenitsyn Reader, New and Essential Writings, and his first book was called The Liberal Political Science of Raymond Aron, published in 1992. Dan and I have been friends for a long time. He's a voracious reader with a broad and distinctive range of interests, and it's my great pleasure to welcome him to the Enduring Interest podcast. Dan, hello. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. Happy to be here with you today. Yeah, it's great to uh, get your wisdom on Aron, someone, uh, as I mentioned in the introduction that you've been writing about and thinking about for a long time. Why don't you first just give us a very brief uh, introduction to the man, Raymond Aron, who he was and his sort of his pro- professional career, uh, and then we'll, we'll get into the book. But just how about a little brief intro to, uh, to Aron, the man?
1: Sure. Aron was born, Raymond Aron, I think, is the leading French political thinker, of the twentieth century. He, he was, as his student Pierre Menant liked to say, one of the last human beings in Europe and the West who was not a prisoner of these intellectual subdivisions that block, you know, the sort of unity of intellectual inquiry. And he um, Sometimes he's called a political scientist, a philosopher, a historian, a sociologist. He's really none of those things and all of those things. He's certainly uh, a public intellectual of sorts, but much deeper and philosophical than that phrase typically connotes. In other words, Aro never dumbed down, even though he was quite capable of speaking to thoughtful citizens as such. Born in 1905, uh, he came from, He was a Jew who came from a secular Jewish background. But Aron um, had gone to the École Normale Supérieure in the mid to late 1920s. That was the uh, elite meritocratic institution, the top 40 students in France. He was a classmate and good friend for some years of Jean Paul Sartre, the uh, novelist and existentialist philosopher. In a way, if the public knows anything about Aron, they know that he and Sartre um, were friends who later became uh, enemies, and they became enemies. not be- Aron was not a man of enmity, but Sartre stopped, stopped speaking to Aron in 1947 because Aron unequivocally took the side of the West and the defense of Western civilization and the struggle against communist totalitarianism. And it was always a one sided dialogue. Uh, Aron would write on Sartre, and Sartre would dismiss, as he often did, Aron as an anti communist dog, a chien in France, C H I E N. Aron went to Germany to study philosophy from 1930 to 1933. He spent time in Cologne and Berlin. In Berlin, he witnessed the rise of Nazism, book burning the angry mob, the demagoguery of Hitler. And he said that experience cured him of progressivist illusions. He realized that the worst was always possible. And I think that's what's so interesting about Aron. Aron never rejected or repudiated the Enlightenment as such, but he never shared the progressivism or historical optimism of the main line of uh, Enlightenment thought. By the 30s, mid-30s, he had rejected socialism and pacifism. Uh, he um, joined the Free French in uh, 1940 and edited uh, a great monthly associated with the Gaulle's movement, but not slavishly sh- slow, called La France Libre. And I-, I should add, just to backtrack for a second, in the 30s, Many of his writings were more specifically scholarly. They were on German sociology. They were on the philosophy of history. But they do provide a crucial foundation for his later work because in his introduction of the philosophy of history of 1938, Aron decisively rejected gl- global historical determinism. He thought it was false to human experience. It denied moral and political agency. It denied, we might say, the human element. So there are some key chapters in the Opium of the Intellectuals about historical intelligibility and the radical limits of historical determinism that are simply lucid popularizations of his more philosophical discussions in the introduction to the philosophy of history. He was a great scholar of Marx, but uh, without being a Marxist, there's no doubt he knew Marx better than anyone in France. And he sometimes he bragged, you know, I I have spent fifty years studying the writings of Marx and the soi-disant Marxists. You know, they call themselves Marxists, but they don't know the Marxism of Marx. Uh, so that's another facet or feature of her own intellectual life.
0: And in um, addition, well, in addition to uh to writing all these serious and, and uh kind of deep academic works, right, on topics in political philosophy, sociology, uh, international relations, and on and on and on. Then he was also, as you mentioned, some somewhat of a public intellectual, right? He had a he had a regular column for much of his life. So he's one of these remarkable figures that somehow can be both a, a serious, respected academic, but also remain connected to contemporary. Yes, and um, I think affairs. there's
1: no doubt, as the Economist said when Aron died in November 1983, that Rome had more than anyone else influenced and elevated moderate and conservative opinion, and spirited moderate and conservative opinion in France after 1945. So he was an ed- editorialist for Combat, then for 30 years for the conservative newspaper Le Figaro from 47 to 77, and then he was a columnist for the weekly L'Express from 77 until his death in 1983. And he was also always a associated with a series of influential anti-totalitarian journals. Mm. Prove, P-R-E-U-V-E-S, Proofs, which was the French version of Encounter, and associated with the Congress for Cultural Freedom, and then later on Contrepoint, Contrepoint, Counterpoint, and then Commentaire, Commentary, founded by Rhone and Joko Casanova, Mark Fumulari, and Permanente in 1978, which is still an excellent going concern. So Aron was very much a public man, while in no way being a publicist in a, a kind of vulgar or reductive way. So, and it really, is there's nobody like Aron in the West today? And Aron was, and I'd be um, I, I I I'd be remiss if I didn't point this out. He was the greatest anti-totalitarian thinker in France. Uh, from the 1930s on. He was a a reasonable but stalwart and unequivocal anti-communist. He stood up to revolutionary nihilism in France in May 68. He was very critical of the decline of what he called civic vertu, the Machiavellian word in modern Europe. He was the first, really, to speak about the depoliticization of democratic West Europe, the the lack of nerve, a lack of civic virtue, the inability of Western or prosperous West European societies to defend themselves themselves, et cetera, et cetera. And one last thing, and just to be comprehensive quickly, Aron played a major role in reintroducing Montesquieu, Tocqueville, and even Eli Halevi as Sort of conservative-minded liberal thinkers, and he, he often is seen as the last great participant in that politically minded and tough-minded liberal tradition.
0: All right. Well, let's. How about how about uh, giving us a little brief uh, introduction to the to the context uh, for the opium of the intellectuals? As I said in my introduction, it was first published in 1955 in Paris, and then. Translated into English pretty quickly. I think 1957 is the, is right. the date for the first English publication. And it's probably the
1: book. It's probably the book that Aron. It's not the book that Aron thought was his most important book. Certainly, he esteemed the book, but it's certainly, I think, the most well-known of Aron's books in both France and the and England and the United States.
0: Yeah. So talk. So talk a little bit about um, you know the impetus for his for his writing it. Um, maybe to whom he was responding, uh, at least initially, I think, you know, the book speaks to, as we'll talk about in our conversation later, I think the book has resonances to our own time, uh, but just speak a bit for a minute about the the original context and maybe some of R- Aron's uh, combatants in this debate.
1: Well, yes, you know, in the early 19, late 40s and early 1950s, Aron had... Been extremely critical of what we might call demi-Marxist or paramarxist thinkers in France, people who were not necessarily Marxist-Leninists, but who were apologists for communism on the grounds that communism was on the right side of history or represented the cause of humanity, the reconciliation of man by man to use uh, learned philosophical language, the universal homogenous state spoken of by the uh, Russian-born French philosopher and economist Alexander Kozhev. Aron Aron directed his book not at the out-and-out communists, but those who were sympathizers. And that means everyone from the progressivist Christians, the worker priests, who thought solidarity with the workers meant a kind of sympathy and maybe even solidarity with the Communist Party. People like Merleau-Ponty, the phenomenologist and philosopher. He he was also a great critic of Jean-Paul Sartre, who incoherently but very influentially brought together radical voluntarism. In the name of existentialism. There's no human nature. The will is everything. Human beings can do whatever they want, and in the name of authenticity and commitment, but incoherently brought this philosophy of radical and excessive individualism together with the radical global determinism of Marxism. Think about that for a minute. That's an incoherent enterprise, but Almost all progressivist or postmodernist thought of the last 75 years has been part of that incoherent effort to bring Marx and Nietzsche together, radical willfulness. Uh, and with Sartre, Open the Intellectuals was published, as you uh, pointed out, in 1955, but there's one there's one section in the book where Aron says, he's talking about a play of Sartre, where one of the main characters talks about... Valorizes violence, going out there and destroying the bourgeoisie, destroying the system order, destroying French democracy. And Aron points out in a very suggestive passage that this sounds as much like fascism or Nazism as it does communism. And Aron saw that about Sartre. And Sartre would write a book in 1961 called The Critique of Dialectical Reason, and he said in that book, the only way for human beings to overcome the separateness, the solitude that existentialists spoke about was through fraternity terror, fraternity terror. Hmm. Find fleeting moments of brotherhood in revolutionary violence. So Sark gave a couple of examples. One were the revolutionary mob carrying on pikes the heads of Louis XVI's guards as they marched the king and queen involuntarily back to Paris on September's, uh, in, in September, October 1789. Um, so uh, in that sense, Sar- S- Aron already discerned that and Marxism pointed to something like the Cultural Revolution, or, or Trotskyism, perpetual violence. You can never achieve this revolutionary nirvana, but through acts of violence one finds something like authentic liberty or emancipation. So long and short of it is Aron was trying to inform public opinion. Now the Stalinists or the Leninist Stalinists were gonna remain Leninist Stalinists, but he wanted men of the left to see exactly what was at stake in the totalitarian temptation. You know, and, and I'll say one other thing, I, when I was rereading the book the last few days, I saw he directed his eye at those who thought, if we don't believe in the messianic fanaticism of the communists, somehow the only alternative is nihilism. You know, in other words, we've given up hope. And our own thought, And a commitment to a prosaic but decent society, there was plenty of room to sustain hope. In other words, this was a false hope. The idea that these inhuman messianic promises were coextensive with authentic hope or authentic human dignity was a great and terrible chimera.
0: So let's get into part one. The book is divided into three parts. The first part is called political myths. Uh, I thought we might talk about at least two of the three political myths that Aron mentions. One is is the myth of the left, uh, and then the other one that that I'd be interested to hear your thoughts about is the myth of revolution. It seems to me that the kind of the incoherent combination that you're talking about between existentialism and uh dialectical materialism depends in part around seems to suggest uh, on these myths, whether consciously or un- unconsciously, the, the thinkers that you're describing, these, these people like Sartre, Merleau-Ponty and the, and the fellow travelers are in, are in some part um, dependent on these myths. So maybe describe for, for our listeners a little bit what Aron means by the myth of the left and the myth of revolution.
1: Yeah, I, I, I think, uh, 30 years, 20 years before Solzhenitsyn, uh, Aron appreciated the utter falsehood of a view of politics and human nature and social reality that replaced, you might say, sort of the elementary understanding of the mix of good and evil in all human affairs and in the human heart with this Manichean view that the the fundamental political and human distinction is between progress and reaction. I wrote occasionally, and I think it's partly rhetorically, he'll say, if you mean by the left, the eternal left, the defense of the weak or the subjective. You know, he says, uh, I'm with the left. You know, I want a society that includes those who have been excluded. But Iron also finds the whole category of the left to be an incoherent notion that lumps together so much that can't readily be lumped together. You know, part of the left after 1789 was bourgeois; it was committed to liberal values, to liberal constitutionalism. Sometimes even to, uh, like the Orleanists in France, to liberal constitutional monarchy. Another left had a Adopted the slogans and policies and hopes of, of revolutionary terror and uh, extremism. And um, at one point in the book, Aron says about his friend Simone vale, Veil, the French Jewish social philosopher who was a kind of crypto Catholic. He, he says, she and her concern for the su- suffering and the weak. Although she was always anti-Marxist, he said she doesn't belong to the right or left. In other words, here somebody is really concerned, as we would say today, with social justice and human dignity without identifying that concern in any way with ideological extremism. Aron really believed that the myth of the left, he quotes at one point Clemenceau, the tiger from World War I, the great prime minister of France quotes him as saying, the revolution is a block. And that way, and Aron says that was easy to do in 1905 when the French Revolution was around. But Aron said, do we really want to say that the constitutional monarchists in 1789 who wanted English style liberty for France or those who defended property and religious liberty and who opposed ideological fanaticism That they belong in the same camp as Robespierre and Babouf and his conspiracy of equals. And then, of course, as Aron and François Furet and others have noted, the myth of the left allowed uh, certain historians and philosophers and political activists to simply lump together Bolshevism, a very extremist and destructive and cruel version of the left with every other current of the left uh, uh, from 1789. So um, I think Aron's purpose was twofold. One to say um, it's a mistake to identify the triumph of the left simply with the victory of goodness and progress. And secondly, the left is much more variegated historically and politically. Some of its elements are on the side of decency, preserving a free and civilized order, and some of them are as totalitarian as Nazism, as the whole Hitlerite enterprise. So um, what Iran is doing, I think, is trying to show that the self-understanding of French and European, and I would say perhaps American... Progressivists do was based on a wholly unhistorical and uncritical account of what the modern left, the post 1790-89. Uh, by the way, later in the 70s, and I think influenced by Solzhenitsyn, Aron says, um, "I, I guess, wholly reject uh, the myths of the left and revolution." He says they always cause infinitely more harm than they do if they cause goodness, you know, so he, uh, his rhetoric is a little more moderate in the opium of the intellectuals because he had a rhetorical purpose, and the rhetorical purpose was to win some men of the left, of the non-totalitarian left, over to the cause of moderation. So Aron is right. always, always making a lot of distinctions. He always tries to be equitable to those he criticizes because he's a political man in the sense of he's not trying to win a debate so much as he's trying to increase the sum total of reason and moderation in the civic and intellectual discussion.
0: And how about the myth, the myth of revolution? Is his, is his uh, critique uh, aimed primarily at the Marxist conception of of revolution that the the idea of revolution now is is anchored in this logic of history um, is is errone also talking about um kind of a cult of revolution in the jacobin sense um, what what's the sort of what is the myth of revolution that well, he he's trying about, to I, argue against
1: he gives a very interesting example on page 38 he refers to, I think, is his greatest pre war speech, a speech he gave to the Society of French Philosophy on June 17, 1939. He got the date wrong. He says it's 1938. But um, in any case, he shocked an audience of French philosophers and intellectuals by saying, Those of us who are trying to preserve the fundamental liberties, political freedom, constitutionalism, religious liberty human dignity and that includes economic freedom there can't be political freedom without economic freedom he says let's be truthful we're conservatives we including us liberals we're supporting and affirming the decency and justice of democratic conservatism and he says to these intellectuals you want you always see revolution as this homogenous unified, wonderful thing. But he says the greatest recent revolution of our time was in Nazi Germany. And so Aron was attacking that myth that, you know, the Marxist way of seeing Nazism as either a, a form of late capitalism or as counter-revolutionary. But Aron appreciated that Nazism was, as his friend Hermann rauchnick Put it in an important book from 1937, A Revolution of Nihilism. And it was not defending traditional values and traditional society. In many important respects, it was as radical and revolutionary as communism or Bolshevism itself. Yes, Arone does have a lot to say about Jacobinism. And in other writings, Aron uh, expressed real admiration for Edmund Burke, I think it's fair to say he is more to the left of Burke in the sense he's more secular and uh, less wedded to the preservation of the prescriptive traditions of at least aspects of the old regime. But he thought Burke's siren call, his clarion call against Jacobinism was essentially right. That I think Aron was absolutely convinced that there could be a form of totalitarian democracy. A little later in the book, I believe it's pages 350 and 51, he talks about people like uh, Tocqueville, Renan, Burckhardt. And he says, these men saw that modern revolution usually undermines liberty and human dignity, concentrates power, homogenizes civil society in a way where there's less opportunity to protect those who need to be protected against arbitrary power. And so for Aron, the anti revolutionary commitments of Burke or Tocqueville or Burkhart were, in important respects, more enlightened, enlightening about. Uh, You know, in other words, modern revolution, rather than be an instrument of emancipation and protection of fundamental liberties, had become a fundamental force for crushing the human spirit and eliminating the pluralistic institutions that prevents an inhuman concentration of power. So uh, what's nice about Aron is you read Open the Intellectual, it's very hard to pigeonhole him. He's a man of the right, he's a man of the left, but I think he saw that the myth of revolution in its vulgar form, kind of indiscriminate support for revolution, come what may, had become an utterly destructive force in modern history. And Aron's attitude was, you know, uh, yes, maybe maybe every once in a while one could have a more decorous revolution like the English had at the end of the 17th century. But, uh, but, uh, uh, to valorize revolution as the necessary instrument to emancipate human beings from repression and restraint was based almost wholly on immoral and ahistorical illusions.
0: Yeah, that's very good. Um, let me let me just ask you about a specific passage that that I think gets to the core of what we're what we're talking about with with revolution. It comes at the end of this first first part of the book in a chapter called Concerning Political Optimism. Yes. Uh, it's, it's on page 96, he, at the, near the, the last full paragraph uh, on that page. He says, the common source of these errors is a kind of visionary optimism combined with a pessimistic view of, of reality. It seems to me that, that that combination right is characteristic of you know various stripes of utopian thinking, the kind of thinking that you see, you know, pretty pretty prevalent today. I guess back to the the people to whom he's speaking, the men of the left, the people he's trying to to sort of convert to a more moderate moderate liberalism, that I'm just trying to puzzle out that dynamic a little more, is it that the visionary optimism of these people, their sort of ideological co- commitments doesn't allow them to see reality clearly and they're always willing to kind of think the worst about their society, right? Or is it that they're, you know, they have a more reasonable pessimism, which leads them to then be attracted to these utopian ideologies? I'm just sort of interest, interested in your thoughts, teasing out that that dynamic, because I think it's well, so so it, relevant to today.
1: Yeah, it's a great question, because a role... Really was preoccupied by this strange dialect of how excessive optimism reinforced brutality and in the end, a kind of catastrophic nihilism. He once described the structure of Marx's own philosophical and political thought as a catastrophic optimism. You know, the idea if you destroy everything, then suddenly a path opens up for true Notice this Marxian language emancipation. It's not political liberty, it's not happiness, it's not the sort of prosaic decencies of a civilized society. It's something we can't even understand and define. But Aron is extremely wor- worried of the idea that first you destroy, and then uh, a messianic paradise arises. Um, sometimes in the book, Aron says, um, that the the progressivist Christians we would call them liberation theologians today or the marxified intellectuals they the um he he says they had really given up on authentic hope. they had ceased to see it's all or nothing perfect society or the truth of the human condition and the political good of man is nihilism, nothing right and Aron had a gift for seeing that imperfect, prosaic societies, in other words, societies that we write prose about and not revolutionary poetry, were nonetheless sources of hope. You know, Malraux, Andre Malraux, who was a very good friend of Aron and got him into De Gaulle's cabinet in 1946, he once told Aron and Kessler and others, I had ceased to be a revolutionary, a communist revolutionary, when I realized communism on the revolution would not uh, overcome traffic accidents and unrequited love. You know, in other words, you (laughs) could nationalize commanding heights to the economy, but you were still going to go into depression when a loved one died, or when your girlfriend broke up with you, or when you met personal tragedy. Yeah, yeah, that's
0: a a uh, wonderful quote.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It really is a wonderful quote. And uh, so, the inability to understand that politics of the kind, that political reason of the kind that doesn't aim to establish paradise on earth, the kind that recognizes limits and imperfections, and Kolakowski, the great literary Kolakowski, who wrote so well in Marxism, the Polish philosopher and dissident, Aron had one thing in common, many things in common, but they both thought social conflict was, you know, uh, Modesty once says in a society, if you don't have any noise, you have despotism. So right. conflict, it's part of the glory of a free society, not the kind of conflict we see in the streets right now, where one tears down, but the ordinary conflict The partisan contestation of human beings in a vibrant free society is a good thing. And not to be able to see, to see in that only some hopeless failure to establish political nirvana was an abdication of human reason and responsibility. Aron doesn't quite, he he cites a passage in Tocqueville's uh, Souvenir sometimes, I don't believe in this book, but where Tocqueville is confronting his friend or the revolution of 1848, the scientist and man of letters, Ampere, who's giddy that France has another revolution. And uh, Tocqueville, who, who adored Ampere, but he said, what a fool. You know, uh, he, he judges politics in the spirit of literature, a sort of decent political order with... And the ordinary amount of political contestation where neither side is the embodiment of holiness and perfection, that's too prosaic, you know? So again and again for Rome, these intellectuals turn to politics in the spirit of literary politics, which is another way of saying only salvific revolution, only messianic ideology. Is worthy of their attention. They the, the idea that you would despair if you accepted human nature as it is, tried to improve it. If you accepted political life as it is, tried to elevate it, reform it. That was beneath their dignity. And Aron saw in all of that and the myths, the myth of the proletariat. You know that, that that's the least interesting in a way because mar uh, Aron saw that. Uh, The proletariat didn't have this consciousness. It was shoved into them or on them or on top of them by uh, members of the Communist Party and their intellectual apologists. But these myths were not only obstacles to proper, balanced political understanding, but paradoxically, they undermined hope because one was identifying the very possibility of redemption in history with myths that could never deliver. And one was therefore undermining the prosaic dignity of a genuine free society. Imperfect, as Aron says, um, he he once said, we must defend the imperfect against the detestable.
0: Yeah, That's great, that's great. That's a great line. Or he
1: uh, he had another line where he said, yeah, yeah, that, that, that's, one of, that's one of the best. But this idea that um, he says right at the beginning of the introduction to uh, this edition of The Opium of the Intellectuals that Myrtle Ponty is wrong. If he stops believing in historical reason and, uh, you know, Stalinist Russia is the embodiment of the human vocation, this is not a reason for despair. It will actually open up a mode of political reasoning that has a dignity all its own.
0: That's great. Well, let's talk for a minute or two about part two uh, of the book called "The Idolatry of History." Uh, one point that I think Aron is is absolutely great on is is the connection between what he calls uh, Promethean ambition uh, and the idolatry of history. Uh, and so he, you know, he he, as you said in your in your introduction to him, he knew Marx better than most of the Marxists in in France, um, and so he was quite Quite aware uh, of the different variants of, of Marxism that, uh, in part, depended upon the evolution of Marx's own thought, but in part depended upon who is interpreting Marx. Um, but it's somewhat surprising, right, if you if you if you look at Marx and and um, you know understand dial- the meaning of dialectical materialism and this evolution from one uh, form of social order to another right one one reaction to marx and his and his thought is well we just need to wait for history to work itself out the logic of history is what it is and so lucky us we get to watch it unfold and eventually we can participate in the revolution that will you know come of its own accord aron sort of saw i think that the leninist interpretation of marxism which was a more voluntarist interpretation maybe wasn't a surprising as some people uh, might have thought. Somehow this lo- this idea of a logic of history made people have these Promethean ambitions to re-engineer society more than they would in the absence of any historical logic. Uh, and, and so maybe talk a little bit about his putting together of these two somewhat paradoxical things.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, there was an old Marxist critique of Leninism associated with the Mensheviks at the time of the revolutions of 1917, is that, no, this is all supposed to happen automatically, and you're acting like Babouf, you're acting like these French revolutionary voluntists trying to push things along. But it's interesting, Marx, who in his uh, introduction to the Russian edition of the Communist Manifesto in 1881, endorsed the populist and revolutionary nihilists. He said, well, push it along, you know?
0: Well, and Um, you have a claim, I mean, as Ron emphasizes, you have this claim to science, that this history is a scientific interpretation. I
1: I would say every version of Marxism, going back to the Marxism of Marx, the Marxism of Lenin and Stalin, the Marxism of the New Left, the Marxism of the Maoists and Castroites, it always entails some mixture of science, historical inevitability, and revolutionary voluntarism or revolutionary fanaticism. The mix, the incoherent mix, is there from the beginning. Sartre tried to philosophize an incoherent mix by bringing Marx and Nietzsche together, will and, and historical inevitability. Yes, I think i wrote saw that. He saw that Promethean ambition, which is another form of willfulness and the denial of limits. And Aron, in some of his writings on political philosophy, says, you know, even our Western democratic societies, our defense of constitutionalism really partakes of a more classical spirit, a sense that liberty needs limits, liberty under law. But our societies are nonetheless dynamic and, to some extent, Promethean societies. And uh, uh, But communist totalitarianism takes the Prometheism, the idea of uh, human self-deification, or, as Marx said in his doctoral dissertation, rejecting all servility before the gods. And it takes it to a terrible extreme. And, of course, Aron didn't talk this way too often, but he understood the point that utter Promethean ambition without a respect for tradition and limits. Aron certainly believed in something like human nature. So yes, I think um, um, for the political philosopher, the serious student of politics and human nature, Aron's ability to see that connection between Promethean ambition and the global determinism, the science of history is very important. And as I said, many of those chapters in that third section on the meaning of history are um, they're a kind of clear, ample account of Aron's own philosophy of history, which left an important place for free will and moral and political agency. You know, I think uh, Aron would have endorsed Milton Himmelfarb's view. No Hitler, no Holocaust, no Churchill the real possibility that England would not have survived the Battle of Britain. Uh, no Lenin, uh, perhaps not enough of that Promethean ambition to push Red October past the finishing line, etc. I Rome thought history had meaning, but it did not have meaning in a Hegelio Marxist sense. It was not predetermined. And Aron says there's a beautiful line uh, in the open uh, in Intellectual, where he says the absence of a global determinism gives rise to or is a sign of hope. In other words, since the history isn't isn't predetermined, human beings can act in ways that prevent the unthinkable or the unjustifiable from happening. Right. And yeah. that anti-Marxist philosophy of history was I wrote wrote a beautiful piece on the Hungarian Revolution of 56, and to his great credit, he saw it as the beginning of the end. The Hungarians were defeated in November 56, but he saw the possibility of an anti... He called called it uh, an anti-totalitarian revolution, that it would be possible to reverse this madness in the future. In principle, the Marxist uh, determinist philosophy of history that denied political, and moral agency had been refuted, because it didn't matter so much whether you succeeded. The point was, it's possible for human beings to say no to that which is proclaimed by the ideologues to be historically
0: inevitable. But That reminds me, you brought up Kolakowski earlier. He says somewhere, I don't remember the, the essay, that the only genuine proletarian revolution in in history was, uh, was an anti-communist one. It was Solidarity in, 19, in 1980 in Poland. So it's a funny <laughs> it's You a know, funny Aron,
1: said, Aron said, that, that's a great remark, Aron said something similar about Hungary in 56, because in some writings, the early Marx said, you know, the, the, the proletarian revolution will bring together the head and the heart, the intellectuals and the workers. And, and Aron said, where have we seen, of course Solidarity would be another example, where have we seen a revolution that brought together the intellectuals and workers, Hungary in 56. And, 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 of course, and, and to some extent in Hungary and to a much larger extent in Poland in, with solidarity in 79, 80, it brought it together with the church, you right. know, you know,
0: which uh, of course, uh, a <laughs> That's revolution. really insult to injury if you're a Marxist. Yeah. 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 <laughs>
1: Remember uh, Stalin famously telling Roosevelt and Churchill, how many of the, the divisions does the Pope have right. quite a few would turn down. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> enough divisions is the answer yeah right. that's right yeah. well um, the un-
1: unarmed divisions, like those unarmed prophets that Machiavelli right. talks about uh how
0: about how about the concluding maybe we can just say a, um a word about the concluding chapter and then get to the uh the appendix which which uh, in in uh, your edition of uh, the transaction edition of the Opium of the Intellectuals you included. We'll get to that in a minute. But um, what does Aron mean in this concluding chapter uh, by the end of the ideological age? That's a, he has a question mark after that phrase. Um, in what sense does he think uh, the ideological age is, is ending?
1: Yes. It's, you know, I always get annoyed when I see articles in the American Political Science Review or the American Sociological Review that lump a wrong together with the uh, end of ideology people. People like Daniel Bell and Edward Schills in the 50s, I think really thought in a much more expansive way that um, with a sort of standardized pr- prosperity and freedom in the West, uh, with Khrushchev's denunciation of Stalin. We might have convergence. And none of them thought we were at the end of history, but they thought maybe the ideological passions that dominated the first part of the 20th century might have in a in a significant way. And uh, so Aron participated in those debates. He certainly hoped they were more... Sociologist in Aron. Aron th- hoped that the abating of ideological passions might give rise to a return of political philosophy. So this is the period, in the mid to late 50s and early 60s, where you can find Aron's essays studded with references and quotations to People like Leo Strauss and Eric Vogler. In other words, Rome thought a recovery of authentic political philosophy would, would be possible if ideological extremism and fanaticism was replaced by a return to, you know, both a tradition of political philosophy and a tradition of what we might call practical reason. I think later on he thought he was a little too hopeful. Um, I think he initially thought maybe Khrushchev's speech at the 20th Party Congress in the fall of 1956 was a more frontal and permanent assault on communism than it really was. Um, And as you know, uh, since you made mention to the final chapter of the book, Aron famously prayed for the coming of the skeptics, but he made very clear he meant skepticism directed, I think this is his exact phrase, toward ideological fanaticism, not skepticism directed at the truth. So Hmm. it's a mistake to lump Aron together with the Isaiah Berlins. Uh, I really can't stand Isaiah Berlin. I think he's the most overrated pseudo-philosopher of the 20th century. I mean, some of his essays are beautiful, his conversations with Pasternak and Akhmatova, and things like that, his essay on Churchill in 1940. But how superficial is the view that the alternative to communism, which Berlin identifies with monism, in other words, the communists believed in truth, and we good liberal Democrats will be committed to a soft liberal relativism. That was not at all Aron's position. Aron wanted a rejuvenation of political philosophy, the search for truth. Yeah. And he thought that had a fighting chance once ideological fanaticism stopped possessing and corrupting the minds of intellectuals in the Western world. But Aron, you know, this is one reason why Aron, the Aron of the 70s, was such a profound admirer of Solzhenitsyn because he says, pose the, ra- the ravages of ideological fanaticism. We have no alternative but to affirm moral truths. For him, this was a, the defeat of communism was a victory of reality. It was not the victory of an incoherent, quasi-relativistic pluralism. So I think those final pages of the final chapter of Opium of the Intellectuals are sometimes misunderstood, but there is no reason to misunderstand them. If one turns to the January 56 essay "Improve," which we added to this transaction and now Routledge edition of the Opium, the Intellectual's Fanaticism, Prudence, and Faith, because there Aron makes very, very clear that his he thinks the ultimate source of of fanaticism is nihilism. He says the progressivist intellectuals, the progressivist Christians, they turn to the dialectic. They, they genuflect before inhuman totalitarian uh, politics, not because they have excessive confidence in the truth, because they have ceased to believe in the old veridite, verities, the old truths of faith and reason. And then they turn themselves over to this false superstitious and inhuman dialectic so that's why, at the very end of the book, this is my favorite, uh, and it also includes that. It has a wonderful quotation from Leo Strauss about how the two extremes meet: uh, doctrinariness, you know, the the the, the 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 zealous partisans of historical determinism and radical voluntarism. Marx and Nietzsche. He, he explains how it all it all fits together. But in any case, um, he talks about these people uh, oscillating between a lawless voluntarism and a doctrinaire based on myths. Um, And that really, I think, that's what Aron checks. He rejects the false belief in historical necessity. He rejects an almost fascist-like voluntarism, the triumph of the will. He rejects, and this is an important phrase for the book, a secular clericalism favoring communist societies. In other words, an uncritical affirmation of everything, however, inhuman and lawless communist societies do. But this is really quite crucial. He says, and, and this essay was a response to his critics, I am accused of skepticism as though the progressivists possessed authentic faith. He said they don't. This is a fake faith, whether it's the Christian or Leninist form, when they really contemplate schemes, models, and utopias. And he says a little later, quoting Edmund Burke, they do not believe in prudence, the god of this uh, lower world. One of my favorite quotes, I think I've quoted it 88 times, you know, over the years. Yeah. Prudence <laughs> yeah. is the god of this lower world. But this is interesting. And again, he's talking about both the secular progressivists uh, and the clerical progressivists. He says they attribute to revolution that sacred quality. And again, it's a pseudo-sacred quality, having nothing to do with authentic transcendence, which they are afraid of no longer finding in the life of the church and the adventures of souls. So in other words, They've ceased to believe in what ought to be the basis of hope, and they have turned to these chimeras. You know, a radical skepticism has led them inexorably to ideological fanaticism, and I like so much that this, in this edition, this is now the final word of the opium intellectuals, and again, it's a correction to a misunderstanding of the original final chapter. Is it then so difficult to see that I have less against fanaticism than I have against nihilism, which is its ultimate origin? You know, I was, pick, I was picking on Isaiah Berlin a few minutes ago, who certainly had his virtues and qualities, but Isaiah Berlin would say, you know, the ultimate source of fanaticism is this exaggerated sense of truth. And Iran says, no, the ultimate source of fanaticism is a nihilism that refuses to, to accept the real truths to it that are available to us in our limited and prosaic human condition. So I think the book is often mis- misread as a sort of defense of liberal skepticism against revolutionary fanaticism. It is that. But but it's a skepticism directed at fanaticism, as I said before, not a skepticism directed at truth. He really saw that uh, passion, anger, rage. Hegel has this notion of the beautiful souls, you know, who are really like the people who praise the French Revolution. You know, they're... they're, uh, they see in revolutionary negation and their commitment to some higher spiritual calling. It's a spiritual calling that has nothing to do with transcendence or the truth, but it's a, uh, it's a moral preening that belongs to the revolutionary as such. And yeah. uh, Aron, twice he uses, I think in Opium the Intellectuals, the phrase, faith without illusions. He's laying out a faith. I don't mean something that's irrational, but something one can believe reasonably, without illusions, but are nonetheless can inspire and inspire the fight against the totalitarian negation of man. And by the way, just to bring this discussion up to date, Aron also confronted the uh, the Maoists and Castroites and New Left in May '68. And he saw a similar kind of violence, a similar kind of valorization of fanaticism, a similar repudiation of bourgeois proprieties, that anti-bourgeois ire that Francois Freire speaks about so well in the opening chapter of Passing of an Illusion. So this wasn't uh, in defense of the Soviet Union anymore. It was a defense of imaginary revolutionary principalities in Cuba and and China. And Sartre was at it again, by the way, finding... The, <laughs> of course. And, uh, don't forget today, Zizek, Slavoj Zizek, the Lacanian, Freudian, Marxist, Leninist, but with a twinkle in his eye, maybe this is just all a show, but Alain Badiou, very, very serious and earnest, who regularly... Uh, in his defense of the communist idea, uh, writes and speaks peons to Pol Pot and Mao. And, uh, you know, Zizek wrote a book called In Defense of Lost Causes. The lost clauses include Robespierre, they include Lenin, they include Stalin, they include Heidegger in 33. Maybe he was wrong to find hope in Hitler, but he was not wrong in rejecting the existing order. And then, of course, Mao and Zizek. Have both wrote have both written philosophical commentaries on Mao's discourses during the Cultural Revolution in the name of philosophy. Hmm. So, Pierre Mouton once told me, I don't think he'll mind me repeating this. He was once in the seventies at you know some philosophical society, and some very famous French philosopher got up and started repeating every imaginable, nonsensical, uh, ideological cliché of the moment. And he said, "Arone, with the deepest respect for authentic philosophy, turned to Manant and said, if this is philosophy, who needs it? You know, <laughs> so so many of these figures Arone is talking about in the, hoping of the intellectuals have corrupted the philosophical vocation. They I mean, remember Roloponti who changed and did reject Bolshevism, um, Camus was not so good on politics. He was a neutralist. He didn't like NATO, but he knew communism was wicked and Aron um, rec- uh, praised them for that, those minimal achievements of clarity. But, um, you know, you had the brightest minds of the time identifying philosophy with a project of universal destruction and negation. And i was always perplexed, how is that hope? How is it proud? You know, the optimism part never comes on the catastrophic optimism. It's (laughs) always the mountains of cadavers the nationalization of the mind you know and this was part of the rhetoric of the opium of the intellectual because Aron would say to these men you claim that this is the fulfillment of the enlightenment but you have a you you have accepted voluntary servitude i mean you you no longer believe in the you know the dignity the independence of the mind you're accepting a secular clericalism that is much more totalitarian and tyrannical than the clericalism of old, right? And uh, that's the obvious rhetoric, opium of the intellectual secular clericalism. <laughs> He's saying to them, "You're you toadies for an evil new atheistic clericalism,
0: and um, shame on you." <laughs> right, right. Well, that's why I thought you know this book would would be an important one to discuss now in the midst of our current uh, revolutionary upheavals that can hopefully if people go back to it or find it anew maybe they've never they've never heard of it that can help uh, help them kind of regain their their bearings for, for a kind of decent liberalism and I think uh,
1: if you re- if you read it not as you know, if you don't contextualize it as stupid intellectual historians do this is just about a certain moment in the inner life of intellectual Paris, Aron also saw this as a work of political philosophy. This was a an approach to the life of the mind that was sub- subversive of true philosophical inquiry of the liberal order of the practical reason that lies at the heart of democratic political judgment. Understood in that way, it's an extremely relevant book because this oh, yeah, pattern so. of, this pattern of intellectual self inflation as a statement thetah the betrayal of the intellectuals treason of the intellectuals that's going to be with us for as we're seeing as you said we're seeing all around us today it's going to be around for a very long time to come
0: yeah yeah, I agree well, thank you very much Dan. This has been a great discussion and uh, it's been a pleasure to have you back on the podcast and i uh, hope hopefully we'll have you back in the in the future as we uh, continue to um Discuss kind of books that might have been neglected or overlooked and deserve a, a re-examining. So I'm thanks, sort thanks of a
1: coming. I'm sort of a specialist on those kind of thinkers and books. Yeah, so I hope to be back. Sounds great, Dan. Have a good one. Thanks, Flag. Really enjoyed it. Great questions. Thanks. Great discussion. Dan.
0: You've been listening to Enduring Interest, a podcast sponsored by the Zephyr Institute. The Zephyr Institute is a community of scholars, students, and professionals committed to gaining a fuller understanding of the human person and the common good. For more information about Zephyr and its programming, go to zephyr.org. That's Z-E-P-H-I-R.org. Please follow Enduring Interest on Twitter, where you can find information about past and future episodes, and message us, please, to recommend guests or books. Our Twitter handle is at the EIPod. That's T-H-E-E-I-P-O-D. Thanks again for listening and see you next time on Enduring Interest.